Welcome to I Took the High Road with Jacob Jansen. Our program is designed to educate about the drug problems that are reaching epidemic proportions in the United States. Could we be approaching the drug problem the wrong way? Mr. Jansen has been down the road of addiction, down the path of recovery, and now helps others find their path. Addicts are not bad people trying to get good. They're sick people needing to get well. Are you a part of the solution or the problem? Come and join us for an hour of fantastic guests, amazing stories, positive encouragement, and information that just might make your community a better place. Now, here's your host, Jacob Jensen. Hello and welcome. You are listening to I Took the High Road, and I am your host, Jacob Jansen. We got a really important show today. Uh, it's called Adolescence and Substance Abuse with Ken C. Winters, Ph.D. Uh, if you've been listening to the news over the last few years, you know we have a growing opiate problem in the United States. Uh, the Journal Sentinel just came out with some recent numbers. It, it reported that in 2013, 16,235 people died from opiate overdose deaths, a Among those, 8,260 were from heroin. That's a 39% increase uh, from 2012. So we certainly need to do a better job of prevention and education, not only with the doctors that are out there in society, but also with the youth and the families that are out there to teach them what options there are to get their their loved ones the help they need. So I'm going to get right into the show today. Our guest today is Ken C. Winters, Ph.D. He is a professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Minnesota. He is the director for the Center of Adolescent Substance Abuse Research and a senior scientist with the Treatment Research Institute in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He received his B.A. from the University of Minnesota and a Ph.D. in Psychology Clinical from the State University of New York at Stony Brook. His primary research interests are the assessment and treatment of addictions, including adolescent drug abuse and problem gambling. His recent work in the field has focused on SBIRT models for adolescents. He is on the editorial board of the Journal of Substance Abuse Treatment and the Journal of Child and Adolescent Substance Abuse. He has received numerous research grants from the National Institute of Health and various foundations. He was the 2008 recipient of the Research to Evidence-Based Practice Award from the National Organization on Effective Treatment for Adolescents. Dr. Winters is a frequent publisher, speaker, and trainer, and he is a consultant to many organizations, including the Hazleton Foundation, the Partnership at DrugFree.org, National Center for Responsible Gambling and Gaming, and the Mentor Foundation, an international drug abuse prevention organization. Dr. Winters, we're so lucky to have you on the show. Thank you for being here. And good morning. Pleasure, Jacob. And good morning. Uh, so, uh, first question that I have for you is... Uh, how did you get into this field? What piqued your interest in this field? You know, it w- was partly uh, luck um, and timing. Uh, as a trained clinical psychologist, I had a strong orientation for research coming out of grad school. And at that time, there was an interesting movement in Minnesota to help advance our understanding of adolescent substance abuse. There was a foundation uh, locally based that um, was willing to 
to address a major concern going on in the late um, 70s and early 1980s with the concern that uh, too many teenagers are being overdiagnosed uh, with drug abuse and uh, were receiving treatment that was perhaps way beyond the severity of their problem. And the field um, recognized that there wasn't available at that time very good standardized assessment tools to help professionals figure out who really had a legitimate drug problem as a teenager or who might just be someone experimenting and wouldn't really need a uh, specialized and intensive treatment. So they convinced this foundation to fund a major effort to develop and improve uh, assessment instrumentation. And so I was uh, uh, lucky to be able to uh, uh, help with that project in its second year, um, got uh, immersed into it full-time, and from there we, uh, we took off as a research team. Uh, the country was also uh, putting a lot more attention on, on the whole youth and drug use topic, um, particularly at the national level. The National Institute of Health was now starting to fund projects, um, much more uh, addressing youth and drug use. As you might mm-hmm. remember, um, for those listeners who are from my generation, back in the uh, 70s and 80s, marijuana was uh, growing in uh, popularity. Um, alcohol abuse and dependence is also still a big problem. Mm-hmm. But um, so it, it, as a researcher, though, uh, I've always been one that wanted to um, be a, what I call a, uh, an applied researcher, trying okay. to study topics that are going to help um, with practitioners in the field, whether you're in prevention or treatment. And then, um, so we've, we've always steered our work along those lines. Not all treatment is certainly created equal, and we're going to talk a little bit more later about how sending somebody to the wrong level of care could maybe do more harm than good. Uh, so w- what is the Center for Adolescent Substance Abuse Research, or in other words, what are the goals of the center and how are you achieving them there? We are a, uh, a relatively small group, but we're housed here at the uh, University of Minnesota Medical School in the Department of Psychiatry. We're a staff of about a dozen um, and broadly based, uh, mostly psychologists, though. Mm-hmm. And um, as our name implies, we're studying uh, this topic of, of adolescent drug involvement and how to prevent and treat it. And we, um, we have a lot of different kinds of projects that um, are based here in the community, locally, as well as uh, in other sites. And over the years, we we really have um, moved away from just looking at uh, that assessment topic. And because as, uh, uh, as anyone in the field knows, once you identify a teenager with a problem, okay, that's a pretty good first step, mm-hmm. but um, what do you do next? Yeah, and then if as... you have treatment, how do you try to make treatment stick? So sure. there's that whole uh, follow-up yep, uh, as... and aftercare issue. As an interventionist, I certainly know all about that and preparing the family to do it the right way, teach the family how to be supportive, find the right type of treatment. It's not an intervention unless we can provide some option out for, you know, some gift of treatment for that individual to take and get out of the cycle. We can't just talk about it. So, And one of the related to that, and it's part of a, a more recent goal, is to um, help parents with addressing uh, a possible problem they might have with a teenager. 
Um, one of the nice projects we have is working with the, the wonderful group in Philadelphia, Treatment Research Institute, and the, this is uh, an effort to educate or even build skills with parents so they can uh, do a better job of handling a problem in the home or if that problem is, is significant enough that needs professional attention, um, how to educate parents to try to um, uh, do a good job of selecting or finding good treatment, what role they need to play um, in the treatment process, mm-hmm. um, how to be a good consumer as yep. a parent for, uh, for health services for their teen. We just think parents are um, such an important um, agent of change for teenagers. I agree. When I've, they I've get had into a... trouble. You know, they're, they're supposed to be great, of course, helping a teenager grow and be the best they can, but um, it's, uh, it's not as simple as, oh, if my teenager has a problem, then I can find the right professional help outside the home, and they'll do all the fixing. It's, um, uh, as most treatment uh, research has noted, uh, parents, uh, to the extent parents are uh, importantly involved, it really can help the change process. Yeah, I've had a guest come on the show before and, and say um, an addict's best chance at recovery is with the family. You know, it takes a family yeah. to recovery. It is a family disease. We've talked about that before. At what age do we need to start talking with our youth and what makes a good prevention drug education program? Does the message change at different ages? You know, uh, earlier the better. Um, and some schools and school systems help with this because they start addressing uh, these health-related topics in grade school. But definitely, um, I tell parents, um, and I look at, at uh, good treat, uh, prevention programs, and, and the big theme is you've got to start before that youngster hits the teen years. Now, in America these days, um, you, you, I'm not saying 13, 14. I mean, you've got to start before 12. So you want to think of, you know, 9, 10, 11 um, in the... Uh, Definitely before they leave grade school. So in a lot, a lot of uh, regions and communities, grade school ends at grade five, and then they might move on to middle school. So that's an important transition year. You want to mm-hmm. start to, um, at home, um, build in the uh, drug-free uh, messages, the messages that you think will help you raise a drug-free child. Um, and you're right, though... The messages, both by the parents as well as good prevention programs, they, they need to be uh, uh, developmentally adjusted. Uh, one big adjustment that we, uh, that we know is, is very important is as the teenager gets older, they're going to be uh, more influenced by their peers than they mm-hmm. are when they're younger. In fact, of course, okay. it's the big angst of parenthood there. Teens want to spend more time with their friends than with a family. That's okay. Mm-hmm. It's uh, actually probably natural. Mm-hmm. Um, and an important uh, developmental milestone. But um, you just don't want that to become a problem where the perhaps um, wayward or delinquent friends are uh, steering one son or daughter wrong, uh, uh, or along a wrong pathway. If a parent sees that happening, what can, what can they do to change that? If, well, if their loved one is hanging out with yep. maybe some people that they don't think is appropriate. Yeah, one thing to think about is what you probably can't do, and that is um, become a hovering parent that uh, in, tries to ensure that only um, 
only uh, excellent or role model peers are going to be connected to your son or daughter. That's likely impossible, and it probably has big negative effects if you try it too much. Um, you, you want to have a perspective in mind that I'm going to try my best as a parent to show disapproval when I'm not liking who he or she is hanging out with, um, and I try my best to do whatever I can to encourage um, better connections, better yep. peer networks. Now, there is proactive steps, and one of them is, to the extent a parent has resources um, in their community, steering their youngster to be as as involved as possible in, I call them pro-social uh, um, activities and okay. um, uh, leisure time. So that can be organized, related to sports, uh, music, clubs, uh, where there's some adult supervision and other youngsters, and there's a common theme of being active in some uh, organized way. Uh, uh, that's a big plus. Anytime sure. a parent can in, uh, influence uh, how their teenager spends their f- free time by, by virtue of helping organize those type of events, um, doing the necessary transportation um, that, that helps uh, provide a little more control. You, you want to always think about, um, gee, what would I like my teenager to be doing during their free time or this Friday night or Saturday night, and how can I promote that? What are the things I can do? Sure. You know, you, you mentioned how connection uh, is so important, not only between the parent and the child to, to open those lines of communication. If they see a problem starting to come, they're going to have a lot more chance to influence them in the right way if they have that open lines of communication. But also, um, I'm starting to see uh, in the school systems a lot more drug education programs being taught by people in their you know mid-20s, late-20s uh, that can relate to that high school age that are much closer for some of those schools that maybe don't have that program, you mentioned uh, that the uh, Treatment Research Institute in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, had a bunch of information for parents uh, that they could attach onto. How could people get more information on the Treatment Research Institute in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, if they wanted yeah. more? Excellent question. The the website is uh, for them is tresearch.org. And uh, on that homepage, you'll see links for parent uh, resources. I'm going to offer a second resource for parents that even has more because uh, they've been at it a little longer, and that's drugfree.org, which is the old um, partnership at Drug Free America. Now it's um, Drug Free for, uh, for Youth, and it... Uh, just focuses on parent resources, the uh, drugfree.org, across all kinds of uh, uh, of levels and domains. It helps parents with um, trying to be the best prevention agent. It helps parents if you think your teen's already starting to use and you might want to take some steps in the home to see if you can uh, reverse the trend or stop mm-hmm. it. And steps for parents if you think, i got to get a professional because I think my youngster is uh, maybe even dependent on drugs. Hmm. Um, so, and there's a lot of guidance parents uh, can benefit from along those lines when, when you uh, get that uh, tough decision. 
Yes, it's a it's a fantastic resource. So I urge you to go out and uh, check that out if you want a little bit more information on how to talk to your kids appropriately uh, about drug and alcohol use or substance abuse. So on that note, we have to take a quick commercial break, and when we come back, more with Ken Winters. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Hi, my name is Jacob Jansen, and I am the owner of My Recovery Project. Do you know someone using drugs or alcohol? Are their actions negatively affecting you or people you care about? If so, it is time for an intervention. Far too often, we are a country that acts after problems arise. It is time to act now. Interventions confront a person and allow them to see their self-destructive behavior and how it affects themselves, family, and friends. Just as important, interventions help the family understand the disease of addiction and make sure the loved one gets the help they need by offering a solution of treatment. I have been through the hell of addiction, and I have found a passion in recovery helping others. Getting a person into treatment can be a difficult task. I help the family through this, providing options, and I become a mediator during the intervention. If you would like more information, please visit www.myrecoveryproject.com or call 262-290-1072 for a free consultation before things get worse. My name is Linda Lenz. Last year, my husband and I received a phone call that no parent should ever receive. We received a call that our 23-year-old son had died of a heroin overdose. We were on a mission to find out how this could happen. He was a beautiful person, intelligent, a straight-A student, and a wonderful son. But here's what we did not know. The drug landscape had changed. Kids in junior high and high school were using prescription pills to get high. Prescription pills are opiates, just like heroin, and they can be found in almost every home's medicine cabinet. To combat this problem, we established a Facebook page, Stop Heroin WI, and a website, StopHeroinNow.org. Please go to this website and donate generously. All of your money goes directly to prevention programs and rehabilitation programs. StopHeroinNow.org. So no parent ever has to receive that phone call. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to I Took the High Road with host Jacob Jansen. To reach our show today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. Or send us an email at jacobjansen at itookthehighroad.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. You're listening to I Took the High Road, and I am your host, Jacob Jansen. Today's show is Adolescence and Substance Abuse with Ken Winters, Ph.D. Before the break, we were talking about uh, what makes a good prevention and education program. So um, 
Mr. Winters, or Dr. Winters, what does make a good prevention and education program? What are the effective elements of, of a good prevention program? We are learning more about this, um, and it's encouraging to see a lot of schools and communities take advantage of this new knowledge. One of the things that uh, gets emphasized is the importance of, of emphasizing the uh, value of risk um, versus protective factors uh, with youngsters. And so you don't want to have a program that just talks about uh, the risk factors and how to reduce the negatives, but you also want to uh, make sure you advance how assets in a given youngster and home can be strengthened. Sure, you know, um, they often work better than trying to take away the risk factors. I've heard you mention that the wrong level of treatment can do sometimes more harm than good. How does that happen? Well, it is a uh, much more of a uh, fluid or um, um, cloudy picture when we look at adolescent drug involvement and try to figure out if this person has um, a real serious bona fide addiction or not. Because so many youngsters are experimenting, and we've learned that so many of them will grow out of it without um, even needing formal treatment. So early signs of drug involvement do not necessarily mean someone's um, on a pathway towards addiction. And even if a teenager gets a severe end um, stage and shows a lot of the signs of dependence, such as loss of control and preoccupation, it doesn't necessarily mean they have a lifelong disease. Mm-hmm. They have a serious health issue, and mm-hmm. they, I think, need to get drug-free and clean themselves up, wait until they're uh, of legal age to reconsider uh, whether they can handle alcohol at a very safe uh, adult-like level. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a lot easier with an adult that has maybe 20 years of, of use, and you see all kinds of patterns throughout those years, as well as efforts to cut down and failure, which is a, a marker that someone has a problem, Mm-hmm. Uh, to say that, yeah, that's a person with addiction and, and they need um, to benefit from specialized treatment. Sure. Now, when we talk about adults and juveniles, you know, the brain has this neurological shaping that's happening and growing. Can you explain to our listeners a little bit how a, a adolescent brain grows and develops uh, through those years? Yeah, there's uh, some real interesting emerging science that um, has now told us uh, that there is a lot of brain growth going on during the teen years. Um, it's interesting because the, so much of the other visual parts of, of the physical body have uh, nearly peaked in the, uh, the late or middle teen years. But the, and that may fool people into thinking, well, I guess that youngster must have a fully mature brain. But it isn't the case. Um, so one of the major uh, findings is that the brain continues to develop in significant ways uh, well throughout the teen years and um, doesn't finish a maturation until about age 25, although a lot of maturation is done right around uh, the late teens, early 20s, but there's still uh, processes getting mature even into the mid-20s. And the other finding is the pattern of maturation is quite interesting and may help explain a lot of the uh, teenage behaviors we see that arise often during adolescence. Um, 
the pattern of maturation occurs in a way that um, the parts of the brain that tend to um, encourage us to um, seek excitement and seek gratification, sometimes metaphorically called the accelerator regions of the brain, they are maturing a little faster. The structures in the brain associated with that are maturing a little faster than the parts of the brain often metaphorically referred to as the brakes that tell us to pause and reflect and to slow down and to engage in second thought, etc., are maturing a little slower. So this imbalance between these two competing regions of the brain probably impact decision-making. Okay. They don't impact how smart one is. Sure. Um, so it's not a compromise of somebody's intelligence or brain power, but it, it probably has an impact, the uh, experts believe, on, on how decisions are made. Because often um, a simple decision made in life is you're weighing pros and cons. Should I try something that looks gratifying and satisfying, or should I not? Because there might be consequences, you know. I want to I want to lose weight, so I'm not going to have an extra um, piece of candy. Um, or, gee, I shouldn't do that because it's against the law. Or I shouldn't do it because it's improper, given who I'm with, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You can, sure. you know, as adults, we not only have experience and learning to help, uh, perhaps do a good job with those decisions, but we probably also have brain structures that just allow us to weigh uh, both the gratification end of things as well as the um, uh, rational thinking end of things. The teenager, though, they're, they're just getting, um, in some ways, more dominance in the uh, parts of the brain saying, go for it, as opposed to parts of the brain might be saying, well, let's pause and stop, or let's not do that right now. Mm-hmm. And so people have um, then really played this out and tried to see, well, how, how could we understand adolescent behavior that we've you know, noted over the years when we've studied how teenagers might be a little different than adults, and how does that maybe even relate to brain maturation, not just um, social factors or not just hormones or parenting. And so you, you can start to think of um, perhaps that's why teenagers uh, are a little bit more likely to, to make risky decisions may not also be very healthy, mm-hmm. but are willing to take that leap. Yep. Why yeah, they and might I, like social life more, why they might like sports more, all kinds of things. I, um, I can certainly relate. I, I had that uh, risky behavior. I was a hedge fund manager. I was always trying new things and uh, weren't. there was less of a social stigma around you know, prescription pills and opiates Opiates were really, you know, my drug of choice and they were seen as, uh, you know, this thing that helps you and it causes less pain. They've been increasing a problem, you know, as I mentioned. How do opiates affect the growing adolescent brain? The, you know, it looks like the big concern with um, using any drug of abuse, including opioids, during adolescent years is that it may change the way the brain is developing in, unfortunately, a bad way. Um, the one big theme that is starting to emerge is that it may um, make changes in the brain that oversensitize one's brain to drugs. Okay. And, of course, that could lead to downstream problems. And so you take a teenager that's been abusing drugs, including opioids, uh, may change their, the brain structures that 
then make them more sensitive to the effects of drugs than a person who didn't have that experience. If you're more sensitive to a drug, you're more likely to have uh, acute intoxication effects that can be quite negative in all kinds of ways, thinking, motor coordination, etc. but also might mean then you're going to be more likely to keep using the drug. And then, of course, if that happens, then you're starting to kick in the addiction process. Mm-hmm. So it's basically a, a way of saying you may be altering your risk for having even a continuing drug problem. Mm-hmm. The other big thing that's uh, getting looked at is how much it might, uh, if you abuse, um, impact your brain power. So, um, and people have looked at memory, cognitive functioning, IQ, um, various learning type variables. And the concern is that heavy use uh, during the youth years might um, have an impact down, downstream, not just during their youth years, but even later in life. So there might be some unfortunate stability in this, mm-hmm. in this uh, deleterious effect on, on how well one, one learns and how well one functions cognitively. Now, um, for young people, they might not think, oh, I don't really care if I'm losing a few IQ points or something. But if you, you look at uh, the vast literature on, on uh, uh, the extent to which somebody says they're satisfied in life or not, to the extent that they uh, are gainfully employed or not, even the level of income somebody uh, likely earns throughout their life, that, that is related to um, people's cognitive functioning. Um, so um, it, it's a worrisome thing, isn't it, when you think about yeah, yeah. somebody might be making some hasty decisions as a teenager. For the, they're having some you know, immediate fun. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't think there's problems, but they might be setting in motion um, some uh, biological and um, neurological changes that might you know, later in life um, you know, have a negative impact. Yeah, that that was the the real surprise for me that you know when I had drinking alcohol, you obviously get very intoxicated, can't handle yourself. Very different with opiates. It's very comfortable, pleasurable, relaxing for you know a certain group of people that uh, creates this euphoria, um, and eventually, kind of f- for me and what I've seen, um, and it took a long time for me to get this back, is to to have a balance in that pleasure reward system that it imbalanced it, and I see a lot of that you know when I work with clients as a recovery coach also. It's about helping them find that happiness again without that substance. Right. And there, there can be uh, a sobering realization that you might not get that um, um, radical extreme wow effect mm-hmm. if from real-life pleasurable experiences that you got from uh, a drug that, because the drug is, you know, is having this unbelievable chemical impact on the brain. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think, as, as you're noting, and as uh, experience tells us, um, many, many people find, you know, I can live with um, finding reasonable pleasure. It's safe. It's healthy. I, it's not that, that wild roller coaster ride, but that wasn't really pretty good. It uh, wasn't very good anyways in the long run. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. But I, I surely am not going to be living in a funk. I'm mm-hmm. surely not going to be down in the dumps. And I can Balance. find ways to, to lead a, a healthy and also pleasurable life. Yep. 
and uh, finding balance and doing that, you know, took a bit of time for me. Uh, but when when I talk to a lot of parents, I you know, I I tell them that opiate addicts that can break out of that cycle are some of the most fortunate people on this planet because we've experienced highs and lows that ninety nine percent of the population will never experience in their lifetime. Right. So, it's how good point though? You've got to remind people the lows. Yeah. Oh, and the lows are low after a while. You got to pay back what it gives you. So one thing, let me ask you, Jake. Did you find that you returned to some, uh, you know, activities or hobbies or interests that you had started to ignore because the drug behavior just overtook your life? Oh, absolutely. You found pleasure you know, in. The, the the using took up so much of my time, so much of my thought process that it, as I you know went through a 30-day treatment and two months of a halfway house and had uh, counseling sessions for months after, I slowly started incorporating fun activities again back into my life. Some of them stuck, some of them didn't. One of the things that I uh, really enjoy doing now is gardening, um, you know, which I, I didn't know, but that was one of those things that I found a lot of pleasure in again, right. you know, being sober and, and that healthy activity. Activity and exercise. I think so, a lot of people find pleasure also helping others with yes. their recovery. I think yes. the support movement is, in some ways, for many people, uh, adding that little extra balance in their life. Sure, it keeps us accountable. Yeah, it keeps us, you know, on the right track. It keeps us helping others. Um, I often say that, you know, out of my judicial punishment, one of the only beneficial things out of that uh, was the community service that I had to do. The fact that I had to give back to others, and that was so rewarding uh, yeah. to me. Treatment programs are starting to realize this. A lot of them uh, build in how the youngsters are going to um, commit to some kind of community service while they're in the treatment program. And so many of them say, this was great. I didn't realize that, you know, you can have a lot of fun doing this. Being unselfish and giving yeah. back actually can, uh, can be pretty interesting and pleasurable. And I think, of course, sets in motion, hopefully, uh, that kind of behavior uh, that, they'll, that they'll extend after they leave the treatment program. Absolutely. The, the, the sense of community giving back uh, is so important um, in recovery uh, because it is a selfish disease. They call it a selfish disease. You're so focused on yourself. To be able to be selfless and give back um, is so contradictory to the addiction process that it, it helps you start changing that, that mindset. Coming so. back to parents on this, it's one of the themes we talk to parents about, building assets uh, in, their, in their youngster is helping them get out of that self-absorbed type mentality of adolescence. There's this sort of natural um, theme in, um, along those lines, just being a typical teenager, and helping them realize as, uh, that it's good to you know, have some selflessness, and parents can try to build that in as part of the, the family culture. Absolutely. You know, and we got a couple minutes here till break, but I want to get this question in. How does someone become dependent on a certain substance like opiate medications? What, what happens in the brain? What changes? So there are a cascading of, of phenomenon that occur um, biologically and behaviorally, and they, they go in concert. Um, so behaviorally, things are, are getting out of control, and there's preoccupation of using and seeking the drug and the person continues to use even in the face of negative consequences um, and has trouble stopping or controlling, even, you know, gets frustrated when they try to cut back or stop, fails at it, etc. And the brain is uh, unfortunately contributing 
to uh, to those series of behaviors. It looks like they um, one of the things major things that happens is that um, by over flooding your brain with drugs, it's it's creating this overreaction of a of a neurotransmitter, a brain chemical called dopamine. Mm-hmm. Dopamine is an important neurotransmitter. It, it helps um, provide the conduit for brain activity. It's a part of the electrical uh, chemical wiring um, in the brain. Dopamine affects mood. So if you have a spike in dopamine with any kind of activity, and it can happen when you see a friend or hear a good joke, you're usually going to feel a little pleasure. And drugs uh, overactivate uh, one's dopamine system. And that's why you get this, uh, these acute wow effects when you take, take drugs of abuse. Mm-hmm. But by doing that repeatedly, you um, unfortunately cause the dopamine systems in your brain to compensate. It's, the brain is reacting and trying to correct for the fact that you're unnaturally overstimulating your dopamine. So your dopamine factory starts to slow down and reduces the amount of dopamine production. So in between drug uses, you're not back at normal level of dopamine that you had before you started using drugs. You are probably then walking around with below par dopamine. And with that, you're feeling in a funk, not your normal self, and those probably contribute to the psychological phenomenon we call urges to keep using. And so you're fighting a, a dopamine problem, and you rationally realize, hey, if I take drugs again, I can get at least uh, kickstart my dopamine factory back, although, of course, it's just temporary. So you get you know, a little bit more acute wow effect, and you feel better for a little bit, but then you know, it's just one step forward, two steps back, because you're further telling your dopamine system, oh, we've got to slow down dopamine production because we're getting this, uh, this overaction overactivity. Mm-hmm. And you can see it's a vicious cycle, and the only way to stop the cycle, it's pretty straightforward. You've got to stop insulting your dopamine yep. with, uh, and, with and the drug. And on that note, as you we get, probably noted, you, you get better. Yep, you, and you do, and it takes time. And when we come back from commercial break, um, I want to talk a little bit about how it comes back and if it does. But right now we got to take a quick commercial break from our sponsors and more with Adolescence and Substance Abuse with Ken Winters when we get back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. My name is Linda Lenz. Last year, my husband and I received a phone call that no parent should ever receive. We received a call that our 23-year-old son had died of a heroin overdose. We were on a mission to find out how this could happen. He was a beautiful person, intelligent, a straight-A student, and a wonderful son. But here's what we did not know. The drug landscape had changed. Kids in junior high and high school were using prescription pills to get high. Prescription pills are opiates, just like heroin, and they can be found in almost every home's medicine cabinet. To combat this problem, we established a Facebook page, Stop Heroin WI, and a website, StopHeroinNow.org. Please go to this website and donate generously. 
All of your money goes directly to prevention programs and rehabilitation programs. StopHeroinNow.org So no parent ever has to receive that phone call. Hi, my name is Jacob Jansen, and I am the owner of My Recovery Project. Do you know someone using drugs or alcohol? Are their actions negatively affecting you or people you care about? If so, it is time for an intervention. Far too often, we are a country that acts after problems arise. It is time to act now. Interventions confront a person and allow them to see their self-destructive behavior and how it affects themselves, family, and friends. Just as important, interventions help the family understand the disease of addiction and make sure the loved one gets the help they need by offering a solution of treatment. I have been through the hell of addiction, and I have found a passion in recovery helping others. Getting a person into treatment can be a difficult task. I help the family through this providing options, and I become a mediator during the intervention. If you would like more information, please visit www.myrecoveryproject.com or call 262-290-1072 for a free consultation before things get worse. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to I Took the High Road with host Jacob Jansen. To reach our show today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. Or send us an email at jacobjansen at itookthehighroad.com. Now, back to the show. Hello and welcome back. You are listening to I Took the High Road and I am your host, Jacob Jansen. Today's show is Adolescence and Substance Abuse with Ken C. Winters, PhD. And before the break, what we were talking about is the different changes in the brain and how the dopamine levels um, get put a, a, out, of, out of whack, I guess. Right. Uh, Dr. Winters, how long, if ever, does it take for those dopamine receptors to reset? The... Um this whole question of restoration is an interesting one. Um, the good news for everyone is there is uh, restoration or a recovery of your dopamine functioning. And that's um, why if you hang in there with your abstinence drug-free plan, you'll start to eventually feel and see improvement. Mm-hmm. You're not going to be uh, having to live a lifelong of terrible um, withdrawal or funk type feelings that is what might be the experience in the first week or so fastest, yeah. for a couple of weeks right you could probably spin uh a lot on that jacob from your yeah. own personal and for teenagers they'll that's a similar thing because um, they've they've all got like adults dopamine systems and drugs are going to affect they may even have they may have a dopamine system that's even a bit more um prone to this um this whole dopamine hijacking problem we're talking about. But sure. um, dopamine restoration will occur. Um, the, uh, uh, the amount of recovery is probably dependent on a lot of factors. Um, a key one is get drug-free, um, stay off uh, the drugs, don't let urges get the best of you. Um, someone who had a longer history of drug use, that perhaps not as much recovery, as someone who has a shorter, so it's a key for teenagers. You know, they, they've got an opportunity 
to um, to get back to really baseline dopamine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Teenagers haven't used as long as an adult. Now, some people might have a compromised or a deficit in their dopamine functioning before they use drugs. In fact, it might have contributed to drug use. And that's why I'm a big fan of people that perhaps with depressive disorders or other dopamine-related mental illnesses get evaluated for appropriate medication that is not addictive um, that can help um, with their um, underlying dopamine problem. Such as might, uh, what, what type of medication? I mean, usually when we, when we hear about yeah, these medications. Um, the serotonin-based okay. uh, uh, ones are common uh, that are helpful for many people. Um, and because uh, a, a poor functioning dopamine system might mean you have a depressive disorder. Sure, sure. And, and the, the, the way that I talk about urges and cravings with you know, my clients in early recovery uh, is, is that I explain to them they're just like emotions. When we feel happy, we feel like we're going to be happy forever. When we're sad, we feel like we're going to be sad forever and never get out of it. Right. Same thing with the craving. We feel like it's going to last forever, but it doesn't. And when we get past that, we become stronger, right. stronger individuals because of that. And uh, most people have major triggers in their life to cravings, mm-hmm. environmental stimuli, environmental things. You, uh, in a situation, you're with a person, you're in a place, you have a feeling state, and it is helpful to think through that. And, and a real good topic, if you're dealing and working with a counselor on this, is to understand your triggers. Your, I call them your, your environmental, your real-world triggers. And do what you can to avoid them or not let them... Yep those triggers get the best of you. It's a very interesting. I just read an article uh, that was talking about soldiers in Vietnam that one out of five of them were hooked on heroin, but when they came back, 95% of them remained clean and abstinent from heroin. Right. Uh, really speaks to the change of environment when they get home. There you go. Uh, you know, a, and, that is a great example. Um, um, and it does lead to the, uh, the notion that um, uh, dependence isn't necessarily... Um, a um, uh, a chronic disorder for everyone. Sure, you know it, it. It has a lot to do with social acceptance and awareness about treatment and breaking the stigma, so yeah. people can get help for those addictions too. Yeah. Uh, your recent work in the field is focused on SBIRT. Uh, which stands for Screening, Brief Intervention, and Referral to Treatment Models for Adolescents. What is an SBIRT model, and how is this implemented in the community? It. This whole approach of, of screening and then trying to get um, individuals at least to start the change process with a brief intervention has um, been around for a while, particularly with adults. And the notion uh, uh, to bring it with teenagers makes a lot of sense to us as well as to a lot of funders who are helping us with this idea. Um, the notion is there's a lot of individuals that might need help with a drug problem, but they aren't at a point of recognizing it is a serious problem, and they're not going to be very conducive to want to go to long-term specialized treatment. Um, so if one waits until they get to that point of uh, realization, you might be waiting pretty long or might be at a point where the, uh, it's really in a danger zone of someone's use. So the thought is um, if we could identify with a, uh, a very brief kind of screening process, individuals at least are starting to show a drug problem, we might be able to convince him or her to have a brief conversation about their health habits 
or maybe a couple hours of a conversation. And using techniques that are um, very effective with um, motivating people to change, these conversations can, uh, can have a lot of promise. So we're trying to see how effective this model can be for teenagers. I think the teenage developing brain is pretty accommodating to this approach because it's not asking a teenager to commit to anything lengthy. You use a, an interviewing style that um, encourages the teenager to be part of the, the planning process so you don't, as a counselor, oversell your philosophy or, or your goals. Mm-hmm. And you Motivational work, interviewing. There you go, using the, yeah. these motivational interviewing techniques. And you... Um, you don't force abstinence right away. That's one of the philosophies. You mm-hmm. uh, at least get some improvement, harm or risk reduction, and then you work towards getting a teenager to, to think about abstinence uh, and try it. Sure. No one likes being told what to do, right? It's, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, I always you know, kid my uh, counselors that I teach, um, you are the enemy to teenagers, kind of you know, kiddingly saying, you know, teenagers... Uh, want to break away from adults and individuate with peers, not mm-hmm. with adult norms. And here we are setting up a model, adult counselor telling a teenager what to do, so-called what to do. You know, it's not the best uh, therapeutic uh, situation. So you've, you've got to try to use, you know, these techniques that um, don't oversell your, uh, your adult norms and expectations on the teenager. Sure. You know, it, we've talked about how important proper screening is to assess the severity of substance use and identify the appropriate levels of treatment. When would a structured intervention be appropriate? When does the family call for outside help and say, this is beyond what I think I can do myself? You know, when parents discover a teenager might be using, they probably are not discovering it at the front end mm-hmm. or the mm-hmm. early stages. often more the case the the problem is, is emerged to middle or later stage by the time a parent sees it. Um, and so some of those signs are going to be that they've noticed the teenager uh, has, has changed their, how they're spending their free time. They may have dropped um, uh, involvement in activities and interests that they once had. Um, they're, they're spending time with peers that you think, the parents think, or C uh, might be more tending towards delinquency type uh, tendencies. Um, and there's more than the usual pushback of a teenager with the family and the parents. I'm, I want to emphasize to parents, there is typical pushback mm-hmm. just in a healthy, normal teenager. Mm-hmm. Um, but for uh, when you see a drug problem emerging, you, you probably are seeing even a greater pushback because the teenager wants to get you know the parent outside the the, uh, uh, the scene and not interfere with, uh, with uh, their sort of drug-using lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So, um, but there are some tips that uh, in drugfree.org offer some of things parents can try in the home. And because even at a mid-stage level, um, parents can try to uh, intervene and get the teenager to, uh, to wise up and to make some changes. But if you... The biggest thing that happens, I think, um, to, to really red flag that this is a teenager that might need professional help now is the, the teenager is not willing to uh, see the parent's point of view and is not willing to, um, to stop using. 
uh, where they just basically defy um, that uh, that request, and they have denial that they're they're really doing something that is unhealthy or wrong or against the family rules. Sure, and this show flew past so quickly, um, and we only have a few minutes left on the show, and this is a topic I wanted to touch on. Um, the, the maintenance medications are being pushed more and more on adults to improve treatment records. Uh, are maintenance medications like Suboxone or Methadone appropriate for med- uh, adolescent use? Are they being overprescribed right now? Um, they're getting looked at. For, uh, for use with teenagers, particularly older teenagers and young adults, um, buprenorphine and methadone, mm-hmm. um, two of the similar type drugs to help with opioid-based uh, addiction, are getting looked at. I don't know if we're at a stage yet of being overprescribed, but that'd be something to watch out for because, as America knows, we, uh, we tend to overprescribe medications if we think they're helpful. Mm-hmm. and. With uh, ADHD, that may be an overprescribed arena where um, too many of the ADHD medications are are uh, mis misprescribed to youngsters that really are just gray cases. Yeah, yeah. They, these medications though might be an important tool in the toolbox, um, and we'll we'll have to see how it plays out with teenagers. I, I you know I agree, and I think they may be appropriate for a certain select individuals. I, I had uh, Dr. Miller, who is the head of Rogers Memorial Hospital on the show to talk about it. And, you know, we kind of identified that there was really no uh, screening process in place to say that these people would be more appropriate or less appropriate for it. So one of the things that I think some research needs to be done on. Uh, where do you think substance abuse treatment is headed in the future? Well, we have to do a better job of um, uh, screening uh, in typical health settings and and then trying to get um, a next step, not full treatment, but some of these briefer counseling and intervention systems in place so that youngsters um, are at least getting um, some education about potential issues of, of drug use when they're young. And if we go more pro-marijuana in America, as it looks like we are, I think, um, mm-hmm. you know, these kinds of um, of health policies and procedures need to be implemented across the board. I'm hoping schools can find ways to in to uh, connect with local community health centers and mental health centers and provide some kind of school health um, services as well. I hope so and I'm I'm developing my own program as we speak. So excellent. What is the final message for our listeners? We got about 30 seconds left. You know, thinking that perhaps we have a lot of parents uh, listening um, with teenagers, I just want to remind them it's very typical to have a teenager who wants to spend more time with their friends, uh, push back a lot on maybe rules and regulations you have in the house, but hang in there. They still benefit from good parenting. You might not think you're making a difference, but it looks like in the long run, teenagers um, that grow out of it and can reflect on it say that, you know, I'm glad my parents were still there for me, and it was important for me um, that I had a parent who really cared about my life and was was trying to do their best to parent, even though I know I was kind of tough on them. And that's all the time we have. Thank you, Dr. Winters, for joining me on the show today. Excellent. Thanks, Jacob. Enjoyed it. Uh, I did enjoy it, and please tune in next week. We have uh, John Hollis with Rockers in Recovery. Uh, Thank you. Have a great week, and enjoy life.
Thank you for listening to I Took the High Road. Please join Jacob Jansen for another encouraging hour next Friday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll see you next week.